0: Welcome to the Reading Room Podcast. This is Room 9. Coming up, we have an interview and a reading from poet Brendan Cleary. We talk to the artist Kate Tyler about her inclusion in a book all about photo booths. We have a moving story from Louis Malloy. And we have the uh, the result of what happens if you Google yourself or you Google your own radio programme. I Googled The Reading Room and I found a wonderful website called thereadingroom.com and, and a great interview with those later in the podcast. And of course, we've got our Reading Room book group. This month, we reviewed a short history of tractors in Ukrainian.
1: You're
2: listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM.
3: I tick. I was squeezing the wine box when you called in a kind of outtake from my cool existence. And I'd stamped on it, squished it about, and thought of Adrian's advice, just cut the corner with some scissors and let it slop. So I was relieved it was nothing serious you wanted to talk about, not like anybody'd died, not like any horse was running, or you just wanted to hear the sound of my voice as if for the first time.
0: Outtake there from the uh, the poet Brendan Cleary. Now, our good friend Michael Blackburn from the University of Lincoln introduced us to quite possibly the most charismatic man ever to set the grace of the Siren FM studios. The poet Brendan Cleary was in town last month talking about his new collection, Going Down Slow, Selected Poems 1985 to 2010, published by Tall Lighthouse. And while we were sound-checking, Brendan commented that his poem... His, his poems were all about drinking and girls, so of course, once the levels were checked, I asked him to elaborate.
3: Well, when I said about drinking and girls, I, I suppose that's a simple way of looking at it, you know. I mean, you could say that they're kind of about just trying to capture the sense of the everyday uh, and for the language I use to be everyday common language so that the common language is elevated again. Uh, to the condition that it should be in. It's refreshed again uh, that poetry can be simple and direct and doesn't have to involve lots of very sophisticated techniques, Uh, not that some poems that do so aren't particularly effective and so they're sort of kind of partially autobiographical but they don't fully explain what's happened autobiographically and sometimes go off into flights of fancy. And explaining what goes behind poems?
0: Is that something you're always comfortable with? Is it sometimes you just want to just want to let it let it go and not explain it and be
3: be different to each uh, uh, each listener? Well, the poem sometimes can take on its own momentum, whereby you start to try and deal with a particular experience, and suddenly when you've written about it, you find that you're been led off in another imaginative direction, and I think it's really refreshing to let yourself go on that. So it's kind of like the idea that you've set out to write a poem about a tree. And then halfway through editing it, you think, well, this is a good poem, but it's actually not about a tree, it's about a house. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, yeah. So that's the magic of poetry, that it can you know, strike chords in the imagination of the reader. And I like my poems to be not leading the reader too much by the hand so that you're telling them what you're saying. I like to leave a sort of space around the poems for people to fill in their own interpretations of them. So the poem's really just like a, like a sort of um, charge to their imaginations. So you don't, you can't be with every reader sitting at their home in their living room and say, no, I meant that. Yeah. you see what I mean? So, yeah. at, so at the start of the whole writing process, I like to leave it so so that there is a, t- a space for it to go off in different directions and mean different things to different people. But it, it's still usually true to the uh it's it's got integrity and in that it's true to the, the the sort of emotion behind what writing the poem but the details can vary
0: when did you first become aware of poetry was it uh was it actually as a poetry as the form
3: you see or maybe as as music or uh, well i've been writing poetry since i was a young teenager you know and i kind of always explain that i mean what i was saying earlier about my poems being about drinking and girls you could say they're about states of inner exile okay. and such things but people ask me, when did you start writing poetry? Why? As a young teenager, I, I can not answer, it's so that girls would like me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And <laughs> Which, of course, succeeded. Yeah. He's dead deep. He writes poetry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, I've worked a lot with young people in schools, etc. and a lot of the time it's it genuinely is an opportunity for something to happen to them that's uniquely theirs you know, that they're writing about an experience. And there is an opportunity, like anybody, for experiencing teenage angst, and indeed adults experiencing adult angst. It's Although it's not going to be a finished poem, or it may not even be in the form of a poem, just writing about it does help to clarify the situation. It can have that therapeutic aspect to it. That's not solely what poetry is about, of course, but I kind of like the idea that poetry is a mechanism whereby yeah. people can explore problems they're having etc yeah and it is quite an
0: explorative uh, process as well rather than uh, maybe a a, a novelist uh, might you might stick to a formula or you know be, be trained uh, well novelists
3: rather diligently you know uh, sit in their room and write 2000 words a day i have arguments with novelists on a light-hearted way and say, well, a book of my poems with 50 poems in it is the equivalent of 50 of your novels, you know, uh, because why have you used all those words? And, you know, that's a flippant, jokey argument. But the good thing about poetry is that sometimes you just have to leave it alone if nothing's happening. So I think if you calculate all the time you'd spend at your desk or uh, writing in notebooks, that probably poets work maybe about a week and a half, a year, really. Good ratio, isn't it's it? It's not a bad, it plen- gives plenty of time to do lots of anything else. Yeah. You know. and,
0: y- and you say that you mentioned there when, n- when nothing's happening. Is that ever, ever a, a distressing time? Do you ever think you might? No,
3: it's not because the worst thing you can possibly do in those periods is to force it you know, and, and, and to try and you know, write something there that, that when there's nothing really happening in your consciousness. Yeah. It's good to edit poems and work on things that you've previously written that aren't quite right yet so you're continually engaging with your writing but new poems sort of come and let you know that they're there, you know, yeah. uh, in a strange sort of way This is a very productive period for me, present actually I think it was Philip Larkin said once, you know poetry has deserted me and it can happen but it, it also makes it more glorious when it returns
1: The Reading Room's 101 books to read before you die
4: Hello, this is Georgia Twinum, author of the 13th series, and the book I would choose for my 101 favourite books is The Time Machine by H.G. Wells. And the reason I love this book is because when I read it, um, H.G. Wells has this ability to make you feel that you're reading a story that's actually true, that it actually happened. And to have that skill when you're writing um, is something that I would be desperately happy with. And that's my choice.
0: Now it's time to talk about uh, something Johnny and I are extremely excited about. As part of this year's uh, book festival, and we're going to be talking uh, more about the book festival next month as we're going to do a, a complete show, really, dedicated to the book festival, but also what's going to happen on The Reading Room Live on Sunday, the 15th of May, 2011. We're venturing on stage for the first time with a free spoken word event at the Bishop Greaves Theatre in Lincoln, and this is featuring local authors, poets, and, of course, some live music. Uh, the show will be broadcast live, absolutely live here. Here on Siren 107.3 FM and online on sirenonline.co.uk. Now, don't miss your chance to be in the audience for this unique live radio broadcast. Tickets are free. I'll say that again. They're free nada nothing uh, you, be available via email if you email us readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk um, and the, that, that's how we're doing the tickets there's going to be an e-ticket there are about 200 seats and getting quick because uh, a lot of the uh, we, we've got somewhere in the region of 15 artists there and they're all going to bring some family along so email us today don't put it off uh, get, get us there I feel like Bob Gale off now get get us there uh, email readingroom at sirenonline.co.uk now doors are open on that night at 6:40. Five and the show is live on air between seven thirty and nine thirty. Um, I'll also be reading something that I've written uh, just lately, which I presented to uh, our uh, our reading. Uh, no, sorry, writers group last week, and they absolutely loved it. And I'm blowing my own trumpet now, but I re- also really, really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed writing it, which is you know sort of the first time I've written something in a long time that I really enjoyed. Now I picked out something uh, in one of the newspapers this week, thinking about the live, you know, and how we're going to present. The live program, um, naked readers thrill audience of book lovers. Now, this is in the i newspaper, and uh, they're saying that naked uh, naked girls reading their London debut last uh, Wednesday in East London uh, at a place called Victoria Salon. Undressed performers uh, read from classics such as uh, Oliver Twist, and then through to uh, Russell Brand's My Booky Wook 2 was shaking her head there now. Philip Spence was in the audience. I love it. I love the way they get these comments in the audience. At first, I was just looking at the women. But after a while, you forget they're naked and you just concentrate on the stories. Now, Johnny, I don't know, if ticket sales aren't going so well, then, you know, maybe we need to rethink about our presentation of The Reading Room live there at the 15th of May. Uh, but, no, in all seriousness, we're really looking forward to it. We've got uh, a lot of contributors who've, who've uh, taken part in the in the programme so far uh, and other people who we've not had the chance to meet yet, uh, poets uh, and people reading from their novels and uh, people reading short stories, and we're really, really excited about it.
3: You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM.
0: And now, coming up, it's time to return to our interview with the poet, Brian. Brendan Cleary.
3: I asked Brendan about the process of selecting poems from a 25-year period. It is very interesting, but tough process. I mean, this starts with the very first publication in 1985 and traces all of the six or seven collections of poetry I've published over those years, uh, and together with poems that have appeared in smaller little publications as well, little pamphlets. So instantly when the whole thing's put together, I began to feel sorry for the poems that weren't in it and in many ways you feel like if they've just been therefore sent off to the scrapyard and if they could speak to you they would say well we were all right for you to put us in a book but when it came to selection what about me you know and but it gives an overview and it's it was fascinating putting it together because the publisher went through them and, and then I went through them myself and And it was interesting to see that he'd picked an awful lot of the same ones as I had. So you have to be ruthlessly sort of editorial and think, well, that poem did get in a book, but if I was doing a book today, it wouldn't. But then some that I've left out, I've grown fonder and fonder of since. And probably through another publisher at some stage, we'll do a book called Outtakes, which will just simply be... yeah. A bundle of poems over the years. There's no reason not to put them out there. But then, won't those
0: poems say, "Well, you know, why am I an outtake? Why, you know, why am I not in this in this league? Why am I not the yeah. A side?" Yeah,
3: yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm just in your list of B sides. Yeah. yeah, that sort of thing. The book runs chronologically, but. But it doesn't actually state that it's running chronologically. It's just about 100 poems straight to finish. Yeah,
0: And I suppose as, as the as the author of those poems, you uh, you can perhaps put a year or attach
3: oh, it a place exactly to it. I know exactly when I wrote them. I mean, the, the, the very first poem in the book, which was in the first collection, Tears and the Burgers, uh, Tears and the Burgers, Stores, a poem I, I remember when I wrote it and it would have been in 1985. It's, you know, a poem rooted in, in my upbringing in the, in the north of Ireland called Country Night at the Railway Tavern and, and, and uh, it's kind of like a, in a weird sort of way like a diary <laughs> Do you know yeah, what I mean? yeah, or any poem is never mind a selection of them over years you know uh, you know where you were when you wrote it sort of thing you know and you know what was going on and why you felt motivated to write the poem so, other than uh, pointing me towards uh, a, a
0: Brendan Cleary book, where where would you point me poetry wise? Tell me a book that you would uh, you would point me in the direction of.
3: Well, I think uh, you know all of the people listening. I think avidly just try and get a hold of as many contemporary poetry anthologies as possible. You know, I mean, I I think that. You know, I'm I'm part of a sort of loose affiliation of poets in the country whose work really seems to only appear in small presses and things like that. Although occasionally you you'd be published by the bigger presses, but just go to the poetry section. And there's some you know over the years there's been some good anthologies. Just picking an anthology of contemporary poetry, and then perhaps having if 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 you're interested in it, digging a bit deeper into individual poets. You Mm -hmm. know. I think if people start getting into poetry, then they can't put it down, and, and it is kind of something that's, you know, although it can be read in one sitting, it, unlike a novel that you're going to come back to, it is something that, if it's a poem, for me it works, it sort of stays in your head all day, you know. Yeah. I mean, I like the idea that poems are, are kind of like miniature movies, really. I like the relationship between poetry and cinema. Brendan Cleary's latest collection, Going Down Slow, Selected Poems,
0: 1985-2010, to is available now from Tall Lighthouse. And if you'd you'd like a link to that, probably best to go via our Facebook page, um, which uh, you stick the Reading Room in and you will find us. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. Now, late last year, we featured uh, an interview and a superb short story from Louis Malloy. And uh, during that recording session, we also recorded another story, the one we're going to play this morning called Aftershock. It's set just after the 1923 Great Kanto Earthquake in Japan. Casualties estimates range from around about 100,000 to 142,000 deaths. In 1960, the government of Japan declared September 1st, the anniversary of the quake, as an annual Disaster Prevention Day, which goes some way to explaining the way the Japanese people have coped with their recent tragedy. Now, the story highlights the anti-Korean sentiment that followed. And during the confusion and the aftermath of the earthquake and the resulting tsunami, it was inc- incorrectly reported that Koreans were poisoning wells. and this led to vigilante groups not only targeting Koreans, but anyone speaking with what was deemed to be the wrong dialect. So your tea break this morning is Aftershock, written and read by Louis Malloy.
5: For the last three weeks, Takashi has woken amongst rocks. Against the low sun, he can see that there is still dust in the air, and it makes him feel unclean. All the time he thinks about luxury and when it might come. To have a bath or a decent meal, or just to lie on something soft. Do you think this is worse than the war? Says Park, who has just woken and is stretching and rubbing his head. No, says Tagashi. He is irritated by most of the questions which Park asks him, by the banality of the conversations which fill the days as they walk. But he thinks for a moment about this one, and he accepts that the answer is in fact yes. It wasn't obvious at the time, but now, in 1923, he can look back and see that the war was good for him. He is a successful businessman, an exporter. Japan is a good place to be an exporter, and he has been able to take advantage through luck and foresight and hard work. Is he still a successful businessman? A month ago he was. Now he doesn't know. There has been an earthquake, and they cannot specify exactly where they are. They have a compass and are fleeing the epicentre. That is as much as they can hope to do. There have been aftershocks and they have no idea how much of the country has been destroyed. Right here, it is a catastrophe. He tells Park that they have walked hundreds of miles when he asks, which he does often, but he doesn't believe it himself. The going is hard. They have met others, but no one has reliable information, and there seems to be no sense of unity. There are rumours and there is fear, but no unity. I woke up too early, says Park. It was getting light already and I just couldn't get back to sleep. How do you get back to sleep when it's light? I don't know. Says Takashi. Park complains when he doesn't get eight hours of sleep, even if he just misses half an hour. Takashi doesn't sleep more than three hours each night, but still Park complains, expecting sympathy. You were sleeping, says Park. He says it accusingly. No, I wasn't. I was just trying to. I just had my eyes closed. I wish it didn't get light so early, or oh, we had some eye patches, or a mask. Takashi tries to ignore him. Park will ramble on full of these childish ideas as if they might find eye patches or make a mask. Though Park irritates him, Takashi wishes that he could share in some aspects of his foolishness and be so distracted by trivialities as to be unaware of the seriousness of their situation. They don't know where they are or how to get to safety, or even if safety exists. The quake may have gone all the way across the Pacific. It could be the end of almost everything. Better to worry about your sleep being disturbed by the rising sun. They sit and eat breakfast. They have a haversack each, but they don't carry much. They have taken food from the destroyed villages which they have passed. There is no choice. One of the most common rumours they have heard is that there has been a lot of looting. Not of food, which it is accepted has to be taken, but of money and jewellery and all kinds of possessions. It's implied, and not always unspoken, that the Koreans are behind this. Park is Korean, so he has to act dumb. Takashi warns him every time they meet another group that he mustn't speak because everyone can tell by his accent that he's Korean. Takashi uses the excuse that Park has been traumatized. It's plausible. Park is young and wide eyed and his hair sticks up. He has a look as someone in permanent shock. In fact, this is how he's always looked. He is an employee of Takashi's and was with him in a storeroom when the earthquake took place. The other employees, Takashi is fairly sure, are all dead. They have passed thousands of other bodies since then, and many more will be buried in the rubble. It was harder at first, when there was the possibility of there being survivors, who they could do nothing to help. Now, the shock is almost over. They eat the food, which they retrieved from the ruins of a village yesterday. It was an obscure village even before the earthquake, one which Takashi has never seen on a map, and now it is almost destroyed. They took a bag of small cakes, dried fish, crab meat patties, and some kind of cabbage dish. Park delights in the cakes, which are sweet and decorated with coloured sprinkles. When he has eaten four of them, he takes the paper cups in which they came and folds them into the shape of flowers. For a minute, Takashi watches him, letting himself be distracted by the fluttering of thin white fingers, the chewing of the lip, the frown of concentration. ''Do you want me to show you how to do it?'' says Park, smiling. ''No,'' says Takashi. He scolds Park for wasting time. ''They need to get on.'' They don't know where they are or where they are headed, apart from away from the epicentre, but they need to get on. They pick up their haversacks, check the compass and walk. The landscape is dull. It's familiar now, and the dullness is its overwhelming feature. Nature has been dismissed. Takashi is tired, but he will make sure that they walk until the sun sets, and maybe an hour beyond that. The weather is warm, good weather if this was just a normal walk. They have food and water, and there will be villages where they can get more. Things could be worse. That's the only consolation Tagashi can find. But it's intensely dull, and when they see a roadblock in the distance, the sudden fear is almost a relief. He immediately starts to warn Park about speaking. Remember, say nothing even if they speak directly to you. I'll explain to them. Don't even make a sound. Don't be tempted. Yes, says Park angrily. Even as an employee, he was never careful, always ready to complain and talk back when he was upset. They have heard about the police and the militias. Nobody knows who is in charge or who the militias are or how they can be distinguished from the police. They have heard this along with the talk about the Koreans. Takashi has no idea if any of it is true and who has started the rumours, but he knows that the truth is not the most important issue. If people have heard these things, they will believe them. Park is a liability. Takashi tries not to think in these terms, but it's unavoidable. Park is slowing him down, putting him in danger. But that is how things are and nothing can be done about it. It would be unthinkable to do anything about it. Act dumb, he says to Park as they get close to the roadblock. No more talking now. Park glares at him. Takashi, in his good clothes, his employer's clothes, tries to assert himself. There is a group of a dozen at the roadblock, which is makeshift, some planks of wood supported on upturned buckets, two chairs, a large ledger. At least two of the men are carrying rifles. They are in military uniforms, which do not all match. Where have you come from? The spokesman is tanned and small but muscular. His cap is pulled low down, and he has to tip back his head to look at Takashi. Tokyo. Where are you going? Away from the centre, to somewhere safe. We don't know. What information do you have? I can't reveal our information to you. I don't know who you are. Do you have papers? Of course not. We were at work when it happened. Then you could be anyone, says the man with the rifle. The conversation continues like this. Takashi tries to impress upon the man that he is a factory owner, but this only serves to antagonise him more. The argument about papers and their destination continues meaninglessly. What about him? The spokesman, the leader as he now plainly is, points to Park. He's traumatised. He can't speak. Can't speak? There is a look of vicious suspicion. Takashi wonders how believable this excuse is. It feels weak. He hasn't spoken since the earthquake. He's in shock. His family was killed. He should be able to speak. He can't speak. Takashi loses his temper. Even though it is untrue that Park is dumb, it's absurd for the man to insist that he should be able to speak. I told you, he's traumatised. Do you even understand what the word means? Do you have any authority? You clearly don't know what you're doing here. This is ridiculous. The soldier raises his rifle butt and strikes Takashi in the face. Takashi steps back, holding his jaw. He gives himself a few seconds to register the shock. He presses the bone. It will only be a bruise but it made an unpleasant cracking sound and everybody heard Park say, No, as it happened. He spoke. The man's eyes are gleaming. He makes sounds, that's all. Takashi's jaw hurts when he speaks. He can't say anything. He can. Suddenly there is chaos. The men grab Park and they grab Takashi and everyone shouts. In the panic, Park starts shouting as well. He resists, more than Takashi does. The odds are impossible, but Park tries to hit out. Takashi accuses them of having no authority and says that he will report them when he finds the police. The leader makes wild, improvised claims against the Koreans. They've been stealing, looting. They steal the food and they burn the villages and poison the wells. Maybe you're Korean too. Why are you with him? Why are you with him if you're not Korean too? You're an idiot. Takashi is tired. He's frightened, but he is sick of this foolishness. The leader goes to strike him again, but Park takes hold of the rifle. The leader wrestles it back and points the rifle at him, and before anyone can begin to attempt to calm him down, he shoots Park at point-blank range. The shot is fearsomely loud. Everyone starts at the sound. Then they look at Park, who is already on the ground, face down. It was self-defence, the leader speaks before anyone else. He could have done anything. He was crazy. Self-defence. It was self-defence. I don't know what he was doing. Takashi begins to speak, to accuse, but he is speaking softly into the air. The militia is packing up. He tries to think rationally. Parker's been killed for no reason, he's been murdered. Tsukashi needs to identify the man so that weeks or months or years from now, when order is restored, he can find him and point him out. The militia is moving away already, carrying the components of their roadblock and leaving an empty space, exposing it as an invention. Though the men were ignorant of any aspect of the law, he has taken them seriously and treated the roadblock with too much respect. It was nothing more than a mob with some planks and uniforms, and he watches them leave, knowing that they will set up somewhere else a few miles away, in an arbitrary spot. They don't even leave footprints in the dust. How will he identify this man? His teeth were very straight, his eyes were brown, he was stocky. That's all he has to go on, yet he feels that he could recognise him at any point in the future. Tsukashi digs a grave, using the sharpest stones he can find. It takes hours, and it's exhausting to dig three feet deep. He works on through the afternoon, and when the sun is going down, he decides that it will have to do. He drinks water and tries to eat a cake, but he feels sick. He picks up Park and lays him in the grave. Then he takes one of the cakes and tries to make a flower out of the paper cup. It's more difficult than it looked in the morning. It would only have taken five minutes for Park to show him how to do it. Sorry, murmurs Takeshi. He puts his own poorly made flower on Park's chest. He says some prayers and then fills in the grave. He levels off the earth and treads on it to make it firm and then covers it with small stones. He would like to mark the burial place, but he doesn't know what people might do if they see it. Manners and decency have been turned around. The order of things is all wrong. Tomorrow he will take the compass and walk on and try not to think too hard about what is happening. The equilibrium must be regained at some point and people must become good again.
0: You'll have seen the pictures on the news. The seventh largest recorded earthquake struck the east coast of Japan on Friday the 11th of March. The destruction was unimaginable. The quake measured nine on the Richter scale and triggered a tsunami with waves more than 20 feet high. Thousands of people have died. Many hundreds more are injured. Buildings have been destroyed and over a million of the remaining homes are without electricity and water. Now hundreds of thousands of people are being cared for in temporary accommodation and the Japanese Red Cross has mobilised 85 teams with medical and support staff to provide first aid and healthcare and assess the needs of the communities affected. The Japanese Red Cross has agreed to accept donations from the UK. If you want to help the people of Japan, you can donate via the British Red Cross by calling 08450 53 53 53, or go online to redcross.org.uk. Thank you. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM. And it's time now for The Reading Room Book Club. And this month we've been reading A Short History of Tractors in Ukrainian by Marina Luyka. Uh, which we, we're pretty sure is going to be the pronunciation of that We should have asked Alex, Alex Lefchuk actually I'm sure he'd have known uh, Siren FM's Alex Lefchuk Would have known the exact pronunciation of that But we'll say Marina Luica with a, vo- a voice of authority So it sounds like we know what we're talking about uh, Joining us this morning, Jill Hart from the High Street branch of Lincoln Waterstones And Stephen Lawrence from Lincoln University uh, Right, okay, now looking at the cover I'm going to start by talking about the cover of this book Because I think it's a very, very striking cover I remember when this first got released, this book Book, and it was very much at the forefront of a lot of bookshops, um, and a lot of the times, Jill, when you come in with you come in with a different cover because you buy all the books, don't you? <laughs> or, you or you have you have most of the books that we yes, do. Yes, they
1: come to me by osmosis. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and this is probably the first time we've had this th- the same mm, cover with yeah. with the book in it. And I think it's a it's a very striking cover. Anyone who's known about it, and I think it moved on through a, a second book, two caravans as well, to use the same sort of artwork. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do think it's absolutely superb. It certainly made me pull it off the shelf. I remember. When I when I first read this book, I'll just read a bit of the blurb from the back. Two years after my mother died, my father fell in love with a glamorous blonde Ukrainian divorcee. He was 84 and she was 36. She exploded into our lives like a fluffy pink grenade, churning up the murky water, bringing to the surface a sludge and slouch of memories, giving the family ghosts a kick up the backside. Um, Let's turn to Jill first. Jill, what did you make of a short history of tractors in Ukrainian?
1: Well, it's something I've resisted for a while, to be honest. Yeah. Um, the, we're talking about jackets there. It's, um, I, I got the impression it was going to be very Arga sagery. Um, it actually mentions Saga on the front, which is the over-50s thing, and I, I thought it wasn't really my market. I didn't really take to it initially. But having read it, I think it's, it was a lot better than I thought. I enjoyed it much more than I thought it would be. Although I have to say, I did feel for me it was trying to do an awful lot of things that I felt for me it wasn't totally successful. OK, in what way? It's talking about um, the impact of the Ukrainian history on, on two generations. There's that side of the story. There's the ageing disgracefully side of the yeah. story, which is quite humorously drawn, but obviously a little bit difficult in the family relationships there. And then you've got the story of... Um, Valentina, who's coming over to uh, the UK looking for a marriage of convenience to stay in this country. And then there was also all the war baby, peace baby, the actual story of of the war um, and the situation in the 20s out there. And I felt it was trying to do so many things and be humorous and comical as well that I felt it did fall between a few of them.
0: I see. Stephen, what did you make of it?
6: After reading the first three sentences, I was sold. I think, especially from my point of view, I find that when you... Read such like humorous and witty openings, you feel that the the rest of the book won't live up to it, and it offered so much promise, and it it is really engaging. I haven't finished the book yet, which I'm sorry to say. No, 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 that's
0: fine. That's becoming a regular thing here. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) but it's a book (laughs) swept
6: up with uh, full of charm and charisma, which is really nice to see, especially from a contemporary point of view. But. Um, like Jill was just saying, it does try and do a lot of things, and sometimes instead of appearing witty and humorous, it can appear sort of dark and sinister at places mm-hmm. as well. And especially the character Nikolai, the older man who with Valentina, and yeah, and I do feel sorry for him a lot of the time when you're meant to make light of a situation mm, that is yes, quite dark yes. and sinister although I
1: did think that he was the most engaging character oh, yeah. in the whole book and not least because I'll say the the growing old um, disgracefully was, was, was wonderful you know he's lost his wife, he's had his whole life stop, and that's the point where a lot of old people give him 18 months and they keel yeah. over, isn't it? But he's still going, he's writing his history of tractors, he sees himself as a rescuing hero of Valentina and her family, um, he's up for a last fling, and without giving any spoilers away, at the end of the book, he's, he's learning something new, and again, causing consternation to his children you know yeah. he's going he's not going down easily you know he's going down kicking and I think he's a he was a, a very strong engaging character yeah
6: it so. is life-affirming isn't it mm. especially his character and the way Luica yes. sort of fleshed out those characters it makes it more life-affirming but obviously like I just said that there are points in the novel you think oh this is a bit dark where yeah. it should be funny um, and I, I've always found it hard, like laughing at people that you sort of feel guilty for afterwards. You, like, oh, mm. oh, that's quite funny. And then you sort of look and take a step back. I think
1: she, ha- she was trying to, t- she got lots of things she felt quite passionate about here. And she, I, th- I think there was two books nearly. I, I don't mm. know. I, I felt it was there was a lot crammed in. Yeah, you... And I, I did struggle a little bit with the Valentina character because her, the way she's drawn is very comical and humorous. But it's quite a cruel comedy it's Mm. quite a
0: yeah she's very cold isn't she
1: yes and she's drawn that way and yet when you think this is a woman who has struggled with the conditions in the ukraine she's been very unhappy she's tried to get out to make a better life for a child she's tried to make a marriage of convenience to do it she works very hard in all these different jobs that she does as well and at the end she's packed off back with the original husband and another baby and actually that's quite a sad situation
0: right yeah i i'm I sit on the fence a little bit with this book I, I see what you're saying but I really enjoyed it I, I definitely I enjoyed to the right I, I warmed to the writing style straight away like you say Stephen it's, I, I think was this a debut novel for her? Yes Yeah I mean for a debut I think it's you know it's outstanding and there's, there's no surprise there that it's been uh, you know shortlisted for Orange Prizes and you know when I mean, you look at the cover there's, there's the awards for it left right and central or certainly nominations um, and I can really really understand that you know um, have, has, have either of you read her second book at all? No? Yeah. Two Caravans? No? no I've been lent that from someone, I'm, I'm definitely going to read it. But I, I, I did enjoy it. My, my favourite character was actually someone in the background, Mike, the husband, um, who seemed just like a, uh, a, a bit of a, a brick, a brick really, you know, a solid, someone solid. Or, uh, apart from the, the night he spent uh, sleeping in the spare bedroom as well, which was just, I mean, that was one of the funniest bits of writing I've seen for a while. And it's the second time I've read this book, and I really, really enjoyed reading it again. Uh, but we've got a, uh, a play now of uh, somewhat uh, a new volunteer here at Siren FM. This is, uh, I, I collared her during the week and said, hey, read this. <laughs> uh, and this is Leslie reading from a short history of tractors in Ukrainian.
4: Now, here at last, is the letter I've been looking for. It is a letter from Valentina's solicitor, dated only a week ago agreeing to act for her in relation to her immigration tribunal hearing in London on the 9th of September and advising her to apply for legal aid. September, my father will never be able to hold out so long. The letter ends with a caution. You advise that you should avoid, at all costs, giving your husband grounds for divorce, as this could seriously jeopardise your case.
0: And that's what happens if you volunteer at Siren FM. You just get dragged off into a studio and uh, forced to read a passage from a book. And I think that, that gives a little bit of an insight uh, as to the book. But also uh, here on The Reading Room, we invite anyone to uh, to email in with their queries or if, of course, anyone would like to join the book group and come down, be part of the book group here in the studio at SirenOnline.co.uk. We're open all month on that email address. Please get in touch. And uh, our regular contributor, Cathy, uh, this book uh, has been for me a recurring, confusing read. I was moved by the inability of Nikolai to recognise the desperate situation he got himself into and his subsequent abuse. I was also moved by the plight of the Ukrainian refugees during the Second World War and I would like to have had more of that introduced into the storyline. I enjoyed some of the humour but was left cold by most of the characters and the obvious continual reference to tractors. I've been left feeling that I've missed the point of the story. And uh, I, I remember handing the book over to Cathy, and she was very keen on reading it. And I think she, by the sounds of that, she was a little bit uh, disappointed by it. And uh, turning now to TheReadingRoom.com, uh, we'll be talking to later on in the program. Uh, I've been through uh, through their website and uh, their readers' reviews. Um, someone here is called uh, Harry Knuckles, which is, uh, I suppose, one of the things about these online websites, people using... Uh, comical names would you say uh, I'm enjoying reading it enormously very funny and uh, asking then if anyone else has read it down to Adele Sullivan who absolutely loved this book the humour is biting and thinks she read it in about a day couldn't put it down um, now then Jill if we, turn to you, we were talking uh, we wanted to talk certainly something about the history in the book it, it does as you say it touches on, uh, on certain things but doesn't go you know sort of too deep But I think it does quite well on the history yes. would you say yes I
1: mean there is a line that I've noted here it said between 7 and 10 million people died across the Ukraine during the man-made famine of uh, 1932-3, which was something that I didn't get at all. I mean, when I did history, we stopped at the Industrial Revolution and that was it, you know. Um, But it, it actually brings to light a chapter of European history that I think a lot of us have no grasp of at all yeah
0: yeah no you're certainly an eye-opener for me how about you Steve Re- with regards to the history I mean were you aware of any of the of, of
6: the problems well I studied some of it at um, sixth form uh, so I sort of had a grasp on some of it but yeah it's very interesting and very moving at that and how I don't know how societies sort of disintegrate themselves and how people suffer for that and and what like dictatorships and all that can sort of do to people and the effects of politics yeah i mean, cer- certainly
0: looking through there at Nikolai's character you are seeing the result of what happened there you know the from from the branching off and moving away and having to settle in another country and um i, I think this personalized it re- really rather well because sometimes when you look at those numbers the numbers you read out there jill for example mm. they become quite meaningless don't they once numbers get into thousands or you know they, they it becomes i don't know you can't really imagine it you can't but when it when it when they personalise it in the in, in certainly the way that, that they did in this novel, then I, th- I think it becomes a little bit more understandable.
1: Yes, and I think also because this is a a reasonably contemporary situation, the two the family and the sisters particularly are very much affected now in the con- current cl- day uh, by what had happened in all that time ago. One of the sisters had lived through um, a correction camp she'd actually lived through it and they refer to her later on in the book as war baby and the one that's born over here as peace baby peacetime baby and it it actually shows how history can have an ongoing impact into the current day i think
6: what is it i found it interesting too about how family history affects your own personality um, so like my own personality could be affected by great-grandfathers and stuff yes. like that and i yes. found it very yes. strange and very thought-provoking which was very interesting from my point of view but it was i also found that it was about the struggle to find your place within a family.
1: Yes, and particularly the two sisters, I think, were um, it's one of these situations where they've been estranged over Mother's Will and fighting for years over it. And the story of the book, I think, as much as anything, is the story of the family and the two sisters to come to an understanding with each other. Um, But yes, at the beginning, they're absolutely atrocious behaviour, both of them. Uh, But again, it's done in a comical way. Um, But it has got some very serious underlying things to say about families.
0: Okay, so let's go for it. Jill, would you recommend
6: this book?
1: Yes, I think I would. I think I would. I don't think it's something that I found life changing, but I think if you're looking for a good read, something totally different that isn't within an obvious genre, I think a lot of people would enjoy it. Yes, I okay. would.
6: Stephen, uh, yeah, totally recommend it. I can't wait to finish it, and it's just well, I'm going to go out and buy it. But I just think, like Jill said, it's not a thought provoking more. Well, it is a thought provoking book, but it's more of like. I don't know, like a commuter read, uh yes. a holiday mm. yes. read, something yes. like that that you you can pick up now and again rather yeah. than sit full down.
0: I'd agree with that as well. And it's probably especially the way the chapters uh are headlined. Um I, I think that really lends itself to that. Um you know chapters such as uh, A Fat Brown Envelope or um what have we got there, A Rabbit and a Chicken. And I I think they the titles of the of those particular chapters and one that i can't read out there um the, mm-hmm. the titles of the particular chapters uh, I, I think some sum them up well uh, because it, it's one of these situations where you don't know what he's talking about at the beginning when you look at the headline and of course you once you've read that chapter you understand the heading uh, yes. you know sort of works back now this is a book as i said earlier i've read for the second time i, I don't
1: I, think you're much of a rereader are you
0: no no not at all not at all i think there's probably two or three books. The one I've, i suggested for our 101 books, McCarthy's Bar, I've read many times. It's a great, great reread. read um, But how do you feel about rereading books, Jill? Uh,
1: a, a good book that will stand the test of time. You will get something out of it the second time you read, the third time you read, um, yeah. which... Yes, I'm. I'm a big re-reader.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I certainly felt from this one that I got so much more from it this time around. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I should. I think I should do that more. Perhaps go uh, go back over the bookshelf. What about you, Stephen?
6: Uh, yeah, definitely. Um I find that especially it's like films in some ways that you sort of think, oh, that was so good, I want to read it or watch it again. And like catching in the Rye, I've read several yeah. times and stuff like that. So, yeah, definitely. I think this one could potentially be a reread if you enjoy it that much. Yeah, yeah, I
1: think later. books are something that mean different things to you at different times yeah. in your life as well. So it's like me meeting an old friend. Yeah. 10 years down the track as you get a little bit older and getting something, a different layer from them.
0: Yeah, certainly. Well, as we discussed last month, I will be rereading Half of a Yellow Sun uh, (laughs) later on in life. Uh, That's booked in around about 15 years' time, I think. Uh, we're going to be rejoined by our colleagues here uh, Gillian and Stephen next month when we talk about Long Way Down by Nick Hornby and of course if you've read it get in touch reading room at sirenonline.co.uk let us know what you think of it or why not reread that book if you've read it before pick it up off the shelf now uh, have a look through it and let us know what you think a paragraph will do
3: The Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM
0: Now it's time to turn to my cousin uh, Kate Tyler now as you remember last month we took part in the huge success that was World Book Night uh, when we chose to give away our selected books uh, one day by David Nichols at the collection in Lincoln uh, which is currently hosting the OPEM exhibition until the 3rd of May and I'd thoroughly thoroughly recommend a visit and whilst we were there we spoke to one of the exhibiting artists Kate uh, who describes herself as a photographer and photo booth fanatic and we spoke to Kate about her work a book also of her work uh, that she's been published in but first I asked her about being selected for the O P M exhibition
4: well I applied uh, or submitted some work about four months ago And I think they had around sort of 200 applicants from across the East Midlands and really uh, the impression I got was that they were just looking for a cross-selection of contemporary artists working in the area.
0: Yeah, I wish they have. I mean, we're here today and it is a great cross-section of uh, of artwork, isn't
4: it? It is, yeah. There's a real mixture of mediums and, and... uh, artists from different areas, different uh, styles, different approaches. So
0: okay, so let's look specifically at your work, and it comes from photo booths, doesn't it? Where where did your, let's call it an obsession, where it did an where obsession. <laughs> where, did, where did your obsession with photo booths come from?
4: I'm not sure entirely, I remember being a teenager in Lincoln, and uh, the, the train station used to have an outdoor photo booth yeah, that yeah. you could access sort of 24-7, and... I just loved that process of going inside, closing the curtain and then you were in your own little private world and you could do whatever you liked then. There was yeah. no photographer, there's no negative, there's no record of what you've done other than your photos. And I think my addiction was born then really. Yeah. So I've been doing a series of different alphabets in the photo booth and the two that have been selected for the Open exhibition are the sign language alphabet and the morse
0: code alphabet. or included in, the, in, in a book here uh, regarding photo booths. Uh, that's, ha- that's right. Okay, it's called uh, Photo Booth, the art of the automatic portrait. Okay, so well, well, tell us about the book initially and then about how you came to be part of it.
4: Well, the book has been put together by a French guy, Raynal Pellissier, who is pretty well-known in France for mostly doing documentaries, actually. Um, But his previous book before this one was a a collection of prison mugshots. So I guess there's a similarity there between um, photo booth pictures as well. And this book looks at the history of the photo booth, some of the sort of older portraits that people used to do, but most specifically it looks at the different artists that have used the photo booth as a medium. So, spanning people like Andy Warhol and Francis Bacon and the surrealists, through to a selection of contemporary artists who also use the booth, and I'm in it as one of the contemporary artists.
0: I see. So, how did you how did you get to be part of it? Why, did you did you approach them? Did they approach you? No, they
4: contacted me. I see. Um, so, until they got in touch with me, I didn't even know that this book was being put together. But um, I was really Pleased to be asked to be included. Really.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah. I mean, one one question we speak to a lot of new authors, and that's one question we always ask: is you know, how did you feel the first time? You know, the first time you laid hands on the, on this, how did that feel?
4: Oh, really exciting! Really nice to see my work in print. Definitely, there's a little bit of your ego that feels yeah. quite good at that moment. I'm sure.
0: And it, I mean, it says there. it does say there. Kate Tyler, English photography. It's in print.
4: Yeah, I suppose that's a nice confirmation of a lifelong obsession coming yeah. good. <laughs>
0: And uh, for more about Kate and her work, you can visit katyler.co.uk. And of course, uh, for more information about the collection, you can visit through the Lincolnshire County Council website.
3: This is Brandon Cleary. You're listening to The Reading Room on Siren 107.3.
1: The Reading Room's 101 books to read before you die.
0: And this month, uh, our regular here, Stephen Lawrence, is going
6: to tell us all about
0: The Catcher in the Rye.
6: The Catcher in the Rye is a book that everyone should read because not only is it now regarded as a literary classic, but also because it deals with the familiar disillusionment Holden Caulfield feels as a teen, an experience people may, many people contend with on a daily basis. Effectively, Holden is a t- timeless example of adolescence, allowing Salina to illuminate themes of loneliness, insecurities, and the not fitting in that every young person faces in their struggle to grow up. Indeed, anyone of any age can relate to this. Among becoming a cult classic and playing a key role in several notable crimes and movies, JD Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye will amaze you at how well it will bring back those those uneasy feelings of adolescence. While Holden was severely disturbed, I can almost guarantee you'll see a piece of yourself in him. After all, who didn't think everyone was a phony at some point in his or her life? Salina's amazing insights into human nature and his clever style of cynicism is unique to much of literature, and better than most contemporary literature. There is enlightenment waiting for you.
0: Okie dokie, I'm going to have to uh, I'm going to have to reread the catcher in the rye. I just can't remember anything about it. I know I've read it, and it was recommended to me. And I think we all know how I feel about recommendations. <laughs> I'm not, not always too keen on a book being recommended for us. And uh, the 101 books to read list is up on our Podbean website, readingroom.podbean.com. You can catch all the podcasts there and much, much more about the uh, about the program itself.
4: Hello, this is Georgia Twinum and you're listening to the Reading Room on Siren 107.3 FM.
3: Fox. Some days, he's wearing a green shirt and the pair of you are strolling through that park near Cambridge bus station, where I sat on a bench and rang you, remember? And some days, he's wearing a tootle scarf, one I saw a picture of in my mum's old catalogue, as I move you both around my head, the pair of you on a Monopoly board. Some days, his hair is grey Others, he's bald, but your eyes always look the same, though the picture goes a bit blurry when I watch you underneath him. Your kitchen still looks the same until he appears to meditate, beside your table with your make-up mirror and the piles of blues compilation CDs I made you. The charming and uh,
0: extremely charismatic Brendan Cleary reading Fox, that's a world premiere that, and uh, he had a glint in his eye when he told me that, it was absolutely wonderful. Okay, now, time to look to thereadingroom.com, is a social community of book readers where you can discuss your books with other members, get book recommendations, create or join a book club, and build your own bookshelf, which is a life log of all your reading. Our own Reading Room book group here at Siren FM is registered there uh, so that we can gauge reactions to the books uh, that we read and uh, have a look at that around the world. Now, the website is run from Australia, and as yet another of our all-expenses-paid interview request was turned down, Johnny and I recorded a telephone interview recently. And you'll hear from the product director, Caroline McLean, but first I asked Kim Anderson, the CEO of TheReadingRoom.com, where the idea came from. I had been
7: a publisher for a long time, for about 15 years and then had made the transition to online in um, the mid-90s when the web was invented. And um, had all, it had always sort of been a dream of mine to um, bring uh, the readers together online in a way where they could go and source you know, all the reviews about a book or what other people thought about the book and a place to get good recommendations. So we, we launched an alpha site in May um, 2008, maybe a bit later than May, um, which was just to test with 500 users, and um, we got it completely wrong. (laughs) 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 We set about thinking that it was a great idea, poorly implemented, and um, that we would need to finesse it, and so we worked on um, integrating much more Web 2.0 into it. And relaunched in November a beta site and we've been in beta now just over 12 months and we hope to um, at the end of March um, remove that beta site.
0: I see I see so uh, how many members do you currently have?
7: Uh, we have got 70,000 members. Wow. We're growing and we're a startup, so um, most of our members are acquired by mouth so word of mouth um, which is the way a social network needs to uh, to grow, but at the same time we also will. Once the beta sign is off, we'll begin marketing the site um, through the normal channel.
4: What's
0: the aim? What's the the ultimate goal for the thereadingroom.com?
7: Um, obviously, we'd love to be number one. There are some competitors who've had a bit of an earlier start than us, but we feel don't offer some of the things that the reading room offers, um, and and so we really want to be a life log for your reading, both in ebooks and in print um the place sort of your virtual uh bookshelf basically with um with everything that you need to make the decisions that you'd normally make in a bookshop uh online.
2: And it's also to uh to, to meet people that also share the same reading tastes as you as well. So any like minded readers so that you can get the best book recommendations um which you know, as you traditionally used to go into a bookstore and get those Book recommendations—you um, can do that as well as go on to the reading room
0: and do the same. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a, a, a vital part of the site, and it's certainly one of one of the favourite things I'm looking at. Uh, and the star recommendations—I've—I've I've recommended a book on there very recently, and um, it, it was quite a big decision about what stars I was going to put against it, <laughs> um, because I, d- I didn't particularly enjoy it, but I knew other people put, people would, so I didn't want to you know diss it too much. But uh, I probably think too much about these things.
7: <laughs> well, actually, I don't think so. And I think that's really good to hear that you um, thought about it really carefully because the way in which you rate a book helps us identify readers that you might have something in common with. And I think that's a really important point for the site in that it's not about what you purchase. It is about what you read and what you rate it. And we match you with other members based on the rating of your book. So if you both read you know the same book and you actually disagreed violently on what it was like, the the chances are that you may not be um, a like-minded reader. It depends whether that occurs throughout your bookshelf. So we actually compare your bookshelf with other members' bookshelves to look for those similarities and differences to be able to recommend to you other bookshelves.
0: If you could explain, uh, I think you've both used the phrase uh, bookshelf a couple uh, couple of times, what what does the bookshelf mean to, to your particular site?
2: is a virtual bookshelf in inverted commas where people can uh, they search the site for any book or author that they've read from they then can add books to their bookshelf and on that bookshelf they then give them their star ratings from there they can also put it onto their wish list so if you would if um, you haven't read it but you would like it on your bookshelf and to be read soon that's your wish list you can also tag it as loaned it read it borrow it borrowed it and on there, it gives you a full list. You can also generate book lists within your bookshelf so that you can actually categorise the books that you have on that shelf. And also from the bookshelf, it's a really good platform for then people to click through to the book profile page or the author profile page to find out more information about the book. And that includes uh, published reviews, members' comments, things like that. So it's basically it's a one-stop place for people to find and manage all the books that they've they've read or they would like to read from, from an author, we actually found a lot on the site is that when one person has read a particular author, we find that they then add all the books from that author, whether they've read them or they would have them on their wish list. So it's, it's actually quite intriguing to see how people use their bookshelf. And, you know, there's no right or wrong way to, to, to use your bookshelf. And we found that people using their book list is actually a really popular way to, to manage the books.
0: Uh, going back to your, your, your sort of five stars, I mean, from that, can you work out um, a, a chart or a league of the most popular books, and also, um, I suppose, genres as well?
7: Yes, we do. We actually know exactly what are the most popular books, what people have on their wish list. So, yeah, we can tell you what the most, the 20 most popular authors are in a genre, as well as what the most popular titles are.
0: And, and the site itself is uh, it seems very, very universal. Is that, was that a conscious decision? And when I say universal, um, it, it surprised me after a couple of emails across uh, back and forth uh, that, that you were in Australia. You could, you could, you could have been around the corner. Um,
2: <laughs> That's w- good to hear. But yeah, I mean, was,
0: Is that a conscious decision or is that something you just, you know, did it, was it much more natural than that you just did what you felt was right? No, it was a very
7: conscious decision. Mm. Very. Um, and we consciously wanted to go global. Because, you know, if you want to find somebody who's sort of um, a specialist in Mandarin poetry or, you know, Tang Dynasty poetry, quite often you're not going to find that person going to your local bookshop. You're going to find them, you know, maybe they're living in Hong Kong, maybe they're living in New York, you know, maybe they're living in Brazil. So it was a very conscious decision that we wanted the site to be global.
0: Looking at the uh, uh, online book groups, I mean, you know, did, would you say there were they were traditionalists who would argue that this is taken away from the, the social interaction, maybe?
7: We try not to be prescriptive about what you can use your book club for. So some online book groups um, are great because they bring together people who otherwise physically couldn't get together. Some of the private groups are used to... Um, in the way that you suggest, so that a group who does get together physically on Friday night over a glass of wine can actually use the reading room as a tool to communicate with their members. So
0: it can do both. Now, we, we share a name. I'd, I'd like to know, because, do you know, what I think I, I think <laughs> at some point I was probably I wouldn't I don't think I was Googling myself. That's a, I, I do do that but I don't admit it. Of course you do.
6: <laughs> Everyone does.
0: <laughs> but I, I, you know, I might have been through Facebook when I typed in the reading room to find my own page and I think I found yours. Some, something like that, I think, the, I, in this case. Um, the Name the reading room, because I know, I know exactly where I got it from, but I'd like to know where you got it from.
7: Um, we actually, we couldn't work out what to name our site. <laughs> and um, there's a beautiful uh, state library in New South Wales and it has the most beautiful reading room that you can ever imagine. It's one of those old rooms that has floor-to-ceiling bookshelves with ladders and balustrade balconies and stained glass ceiling and beautiful mosaic-tiled floor and very, very old uh, Tasmanian oak desks and silence and sort of card catalogues and there's not a cooie of an electronic piece of equipment. Um, in the room. So um, we wanted it to be that place where the sort of the beauty and the kind of discovery of books is all encompassed and
0: in that room so that's where the name came from that's the uh, the readingroom.com. a uh, great site uh, we're on there our, our reading room book group is on there uh, hopefully we'll uh, we'll build a good working relationship with our namesakes um, and uh, how, how lovely and thoughtful that they you know they put a bit of thought into where they got their name from i think i just stole it from the culture show but there you go you're listening to the reading room on siren 107.3 fm thank you very much for downloading the reading room podcast so until next month Goodbye and thanks for listening.